electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the U.S. hitting a grim milestone in the Omicron wave. Dr. Kavita Patel on the new CDC guidance. I expect any revision to the guidelines might be something around the language of that. If you test at day five and it's positive, remain in isolation. If you're sick, stay home. And Silicon Valley star turned fraud. Elizabeth Holmes found guilty of intentionally deceiving investors who poured hundreds of millions into her biotech product. CNBC's Scott Cohn outside the courthouse. A stunning fall for a woman once hailed as the next Steve Jobs. Plus a walk down memory lane. I got my first BlackBerry in 2000, back when it looked like a pager. Do you remember that? BlackBerry letting go of its iconic hardware after more than 20 years. It's Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. First up today, you know it, COVID. The U.S. has reported a record single-day number of COVID cases, clocking in at just over 1 million new infections on Monday. We now have the highest seven-day average of new cases in the world, according to Johns Hopkins. That record 1 million number is alarming, but it's worth noting that it might be so high in part because of delayed testing after the holiday weekend. Still, it's not good news for Americans. Rates of hospitalization are up 32% from a week ago, nearing levels of the Delta wave but daily fatalities remain well below the record numbers of last year. To mitigate the surge, the FDA has now approved Pfizer's vaccine booster for kids aged 12 to 15, before boosters were only recommended for 16 and older. Of course, last week, the CDC shortened the recommended isolation time and testing protocols after exposure and infection, but pushback from, well, pretty much everyone, have you seen the memes on Twitter, is prompting some further clarification from the agency, hopefully soon. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci on ABC this week. You're right, there has been some concern about why we don't ask people at that five-day period to get tested. That is something that is now under consideration. The CDC is very well aware that there has been some pushback about that. Looking at it again, there may be an option in that, that testing could be a part of that. And I think we're gonna be hearing more about that in the next day or so from the CDC. Our Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin talked through the issues on our TV broadcast this morning. Here's Becky. Joining us right now is Dr. Kavita Patel, fellow at the Brookings Institution and former White House Health Policy Director. She's also an NBC and MSNBC medical contributor. And Dr. Patel, it's always good to see you. Um, we watch these numbers, and as we have been for the last two years through this entire pandemic, and, and I wonder how useful they are at this point. Um, first of all, you have a lot of people who are testing at home. Second of all, um, these, this, these cases don't seem to be quite as, as severe as the ones we've seen in the past. And I know the hospitalization numbers are the ones that we really should be focusing on. But again, I, I wonder there if we should be focusing more on the people who are hospitalized because of COVID, not those who are hospitalized and, and happen to have it. 
Right, Becky, you're pointing out, I think, a change in the trend, obviously, from a year ago where cases mattered and we didn't have uh, hardly any people vaccinated. It's shifted now to your point, I think, we're trying to tease out, but this just indicates how poor some of our databases are, Becky, because states measure things differently. And of course, doctors such as myself might put a certain condition, heart attack, let's say, as you mentioned, the primary condition for admission, but did we discover their COVID incidentally because we're checking everyone or did COVID actually kind of precipitate some of their underlying conditions? That I don't think we're going to tease out. I think what we do know is that these trends have decoupled. I think that's critical. So you're right. I'm not sure counting cases is relevant other, honestly, Becky, than to tell people there is so much of this that it's everywhere, just kind of feeling and acting in your actions day to day, treating it as if it's everywhere, because it truly is maybe one out of three people that are positive as of this week in the D.C. area. So I think that's critical. But other than that, it's not as useful. Yeah, those numbers that you just mentioned, one out of every three people in Washington, D.C. this week. And I think in New York City, too, one of every three people getting tested is coming back with a positive result. I mean, that's kind of phenomenal. I don't think we've seen that at any point during this pandemic to have one out of every three people getting a test coming back and getting a positive result. Yeah, that's right. And the pretest probabilities now, it's almost, Becky, kind of self-evident, right? People who are presenting for tests, the conversation you just had. People are presenting because they're at milestones, they need to start school, or they have symptoms, they came back from a trip. So we're getting people at these really critical high pretest probability time periods. That, of course, makes it a higher chance that their test is positive. But we're also seeing, as you pointed out, the limitation on these tests. Um, I myself am going to try in clinic today a little experiment. I'm going to swab some throats and noses and see, you know, am I getting a, a critical difference on some of those rapid tests? But it feels like we're kind of flying blind, doesn't it, at times? Uh, but we do have tests. They work. We just can't get them, as you pointed out. Uh, doctor, I don't know if you saw this yesterday. The Florida Surgeon General uh, went public uh, with this idea that he said that Florida plans to, quote unquote, unwind the COVID testing psychology in Florida effectively doesn't believe we should be testing, believes that it that that effectively COVID is so rampant uh, that there's no reason for it and that it's going to be endemic and that we should just we, we should just stop. Uh, this caused a fury uh, from a lot of folks in the medical community. Uh, but then there is this argument that here we are and, and maybe it's just unstoppable. Yeah, I, I will say this. Testing is just a mainframe of surveillance. So it's exactly why we, we shouldn't pay attention to the numbers to the point where, well, today we're at 500,000 cases. That means we're better than we were yesterday if we were at 600,000. That's not the point. But the point of testing is to exactly find out when you showed maps of where regions are lighting up. We know this is a regional surge. Testing can become critical also because of the very reasons we fell short with Omicron. We need to do more genetic sequencing. How do we do that if we don't have some stable kind of proportional sample of a country to, to surveil? And, and now we're at the point where I think saying go away with testing, it, it honestly it reminds me of a couple of years ago where we thought we were testing too much at the beginning of the pandemic. And that was absolutely not the case. I, I think this is just confusing people more than ever. And I think in Florida, especially where we're seeing cases rise 900% over the last two weeks, it feels like a very convenient excuse to just ignore basic public health measures. But doctor, why has the government uh, and frankly, medical practitioners, practitioners done such a terrible job, if we're being honest, about describing and explaining to the public what these tests actually do? Because part of the problem is you have people who are taking a test in the morning, they're, they're, they're coming back negative, 
And then, you know, uh, later that night or the next day, they're turning out to be positive. They're throwing up their hands in the air and they're saying, oh, my goodness, the tests don't work. When, in fact, the tests work exactly as advertised, except that we're not advertising them properly, which is to say that a rapid test or a PCR test is a testing you at a moment in time uh, based on, frankly, how infectious you are at that particular moment. And that maybe that test only lasts four, five, six hours at best. Now, that may change the dynamic with which you either want to get tested or how often you need to be tested, which creates its own problem, given that we don't have the resources and we don't have enough tests. Yeah, I, I look, I've been trying to say you can't test your way out of COVID, but you're right. In, in a very complex kind of set of messaging, trying to tell people use a rapid test and putting such dependence on it tends to focus us on the wrong thing, saying that the test itself somehow gives you a green pass to then go about your merry way is exactly the wrong message. The test is just one of several things that we can use. It's very easy for me to say this to you now when nobody can get an at-home rapid test, but I do think that the administration, scientists, myself, medical community, all of us have kind of understood the limits of these tests. I, we've talked about how they're not 100%. In fact, if you're symptomatic, they're helpful. If you're asymptomatic, they're less helpful. But I also feel like this has become, as airlines and other industries have moved, to use the test as that pass to get you into a grocery store, into a restaurant, back to work. That's where we became, I think, psychologically over-dependent and over-reliant and honestly not listening to common sense. If, you're, if you feel sick, don't depend on the test itself to kind of give you clearance, to your point, Andrew. Four, five, six hours later, you may have a negative test still, and you would still have symptoms of COVID. And with Omicron, we have to treat it as such. And that's what we're acting. That's clinically how we're speaking. And don't, don't discount how much Omicron has changed the nature of how we're using tests, the nature of what we're understanding about these tests and their limits, and the incubation period. That's the other critical piece. The Wuhan strain, we had a better handle on an incubation period when testing would work and when it wouldn't work. A lot of that has changed and been truncated with Omicron. You know, just speaking of the confusion, last week the CDC cut the recommendation for how long you had to isolate if you got COVID to five days from 10. Um, over the weekend, Dr. Anthony Fauci suggested that the CDC might be reconsidering some of that guidance and saying you need a, a negative test before you can actually get out of isolation. Um, and then we've heard nothing since, which leaves local school boards, which leaves businesses, which leaves, uh, you know, state and and uh, and um, county boards of health trying to figure out what in the heck they're supposed to do at this point. Yeah, I'm smiling, Becky, only because Sunday night I was doing the same thing and texting kind of friends in and out of government and saying, is this changing tomorrow morning? Because schools right. need to know what are we going to do? So I, I completely commiserate with that. Here's what I think. It's going to be hard. They don't have enough tests to make a very hard bar to say everyone needs a negative antigen test. And by the way, I think there's still controversy about whether how much infectiousness with Omicron a negative or positive antigen test confers. We know that some people remain pure, uh, infectious for a period even after an antigen test is negative. It's much less likely. Here's what we do know. A positive is a positive. So I expect any revision to the guidelines, Becky, might be something around the language of that. If you test at day five and it's positive, remain in isolation. So I don't think we're going to see this black and white. It'll make it a little more clear, but not much. To, to your point. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. The reason that maybe they haven't done this is because they know they don't have enough antigen tests. So how is that any right. different what the CDC is saying than what the Florida attorney, Florida Surgeon General has said? You know, uh, you know, so, sorry, it, the science would be better, but we can't really keep up with it. So forget it. No, I, oh, look, I think the difference here is critical. I think what the Florida Surgeon General is suggesting, I've kind of watched and read the language just to make sure I'm accurate in what he's communicating. What he's trying to communicate is we just are doing too much testing. It's not useful. This is endemic and there's no point in it. I think that that's critically wrong because people need to know, by the way, we're seeing, I'm diagnosing people at the same time, COVID, flu, we're seeing in children, RSV. I think it's very critical if you have symptoms to try to understand what has happened, even if you're several days into that illness and isolating. So I think the difference, we shouldn't talk about the lack of testing as a reason not to test. We need to hone in on that problem and keep fixing that. I'm not trying to to, to say what the Florida guy has said is, is the right way. I don't think it is. But what the CDC has said is not that much different. You know, go ahead. In five days, you're free. We don't know if the science keeps yeah. up with that. We're not even going to yeah. require you to take a test because it's not practical. Sure. And I think that what the CDC's uh, look, I think we talk. I'm not a fan practice, of how the they CDC work out to the same. Put out that. That's right. It, I, I'm not I'm not a fan. If you don't have tests and then you tell people to test, it's useless. And then I'm also not a fan of people trying to gauge their own symptoms and feeling pressured by a friend, an employer, a household that they are, quote, improving in their symptoms. So. I do hope that right. language and That's changes. what the CDC guidance says. Right. I, I agree. No, there's no question that that needs to be clearer. If you're sick, stay home. That's the message. But it's very hard for Americans to tease that out right now. So I think you have to go back to the basics, Becky. If you don't feel good, you don't feel good. You need to find out why, but don't leave your house. It's, it's too critical right now. Dr. Patel, thank you. And by the way, let us know what you find out when you test today using nasal swabs and back of the throat swabs, because I've heard the same thing, that maybe back of the throat is picking up faster. Tell us what you find out with your clinics today. Next on Squawk Pod, guilty on four counts. The stunning fall of Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes. CNBC's Scott Cohn is outside the courthouse in Silicon Valley. It's pretty likely that barring an appeal, which is almost certain, she will do some very serious prison time. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Verdict at 410. Verdict at 410. That is reportable, yeah. And the federal courthouse in San Jose, California, finally saw an end to the four-month-long fraud and conspiracy trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the former Silicon Valley founder who promised a revolutionary blood testing technology. Guilty. Guilty on count one. Not guilty on count two. Our anchors today are Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Michael Santoli. It's uh, been the, the drama, the soap opera that we've all been watching now for months, uh, and it's come to a close. Anything at all to say? 
feel like your story was adequately told? Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes has officially been found guilty of four charges in her criminal fraud trial. Our very own Scott Cohn is at the courthouse in San Jose. He has more on that story because he's been following it from the beginning. Scott. Thanks, Becky. Uh, yes, Elizabeth Holmes had promised to change the world. Now she is almost certainly going to prison. Uh, it took this jury about seven days of deliberations, but finally, toward the end of the day yesterday, the eight men and four women delivered the verdict. A stunning fall for a woman once hailed as the next Steve Jobs. Elizabeth Holmes guilty on three counts of wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud against Theranos investors, but not guilty of conspiracy and wire fraud against Theranos patients. And the jury could not reach a verdict on three additional charges of defrauding investors. Holmes, you'll remember, dropped out of Stanford at age 19 and eventually raised more than $900 million from investors by claiming that her company could perform a wide range of tests on a tiny sample of blood and that she had, she had deals with big pharmaceutical companies, defense contracts with the military, which the jury ruled yesterday was a pack of lies. Holmes, what does this say about the dream that you had all those years ago? Holmes showed no emotions in court as the verdicts were read, the jury not buying her testimony in seven days on the witness stand that she never intended to defraud anyone. But the jury apparently did buy the argument from the defense that the talk about false uh, test results going to patients, that was all anecdotal. There's no sentencing date that's been set yet. On the most serious charge, though, she could face 20 years in prison. Guys? Hey, Scott, there's so many things to dig through with this. The, the message that was sent in terms of defrauding investors versus defrauding patients. I mean, personally, I always thought defrauding patients was the, the worst crime, but I guess it's a lot more difficult to prove that. It was a lot more difficult to prove, particularly with the evidence that uh, the prosecution had. We know that Theranos performed something like 8 million tests when it was finally up and running for consumers uh, beginning around 2013. But there was no percentage of tests that were wrong. So we did, in fact, have anecdotes from a couple of patients who got uh, false test results, one who got a false HIV positive, another who got a false indicator for prostate cancer. And they talked about what that did to them, the effect that it had on them and the fact that they were false. But the, the prosecution was never really able to bring home the, the idea that this was systemic, even though there was a lot of testimony about big problems in Theranos' labs and the idea that uh, Elizabeth Holmes knew full well about them. In terms of the sentencing, you mentioned that it could be up to 20 years. It could be on four counts, though. Will they serve consecutively or will they serve them uh, at the same time going all together? And, and that's got to be a huge question at this point, too, just how uh, the judge determines this, what they come out and what they say. Sure. I mean, he'll be guided uh, somewhat by the federal sentencing guidelines. And if you break this down, there are three counts of wire fraud, which carry uh, 20 years apiece, and one count of conspiracy, uh, which is five years. So theoretically, she could do 65 years in prison, but she has no prior offenses. And so that will certainly bring things down. And uh, the judge is more likely, we would think, to, uh, to have her uh, serve the time concurrently as opposed to consecutively. But there is also the fact that there was a substantial loss to investors. That's factored into the guidelines. And so it's pretty likely that barring an appeal, which is almost certain, uh, she will do some very serious prison time. Scott, thank you. Scott Cohn. Does this create a deterrent effect? Meaning if, you know, there's unfortunately, and, and people have said made this comment before, there is lots of people who have made 
fraudulent claims. I'm not sure they've made fraudulent claims the way she's made fraudulent claims, but would a decision like this actually have a deterrence effect? Would, would, would people in the Valley, would people in business say, look at that, oh my goodness, she, she went to prison for 20 years, 80 years, whatever number you think that is, I have to be a lot more careful than I ever was. Uh, we have not seen these types you of cases. You would hope that would have a deterrent well, you would hope, but effect. We have not seen these types of cases since really the early, the really the early aughts. Um, I remember covering so many of them, uh, whether it was the Dennis Kozlowski case at Tyco, uh, the Adelphia case, obviously we had the Enron bankruptcy case, and all of the the, the related uh, uh, the, the related individuals. Um, then there was the Martha Stewart case, and then we really didn't see so many of these kind of white collar crime, criminal cases uh, be brought. In fact, there was so much blowback that the cases weren't brought after the financial crisis because people felt uh, that, that the crisis unto itself was a crime and that those at the, at the tops of the banks were responsible for that and, and should have been prosecuted. I'm not arguing they should or, or shouldn't They're hard have. to win. Uh, but These are cases that are hard, hard to win, win. and in, I think the, the verdict they saw they yesterday did. kind of lays that out. Right. Yeah, well, they, they did the on some extent. I, I have to say, I thought the, the, if you break it down, it was the cases of fraud committed against the patients who were using the testing. That's where they found her not guilty. And I always thought that those were the more important crimes committed potentially, um, that, that those were the ones that really mattered the most because you feel bad for the investors, but these were pretty well-heeled investors. Um, and, and, and really it's the patients who were relying on this testing where they shouldn't have been. Uh, apparently those are much more complicated to prove. Again, I've also heard people saying that it would have been very tough to prove those cases. And maybe that's the, what, what happened here. Um, I think but you, yeah, I can't imagine that this doesn't have a chilling effect. Scott Cohn, I think, can probably speak to this better than anybody. But if you really looked, I mean, I, I was trying to follow the cases as close as you could from afar. The, the, the fraud case against the investors was a very strong case. It just was mm -hmm. because you could see the documents. You could see what she was saying to the investors to raise the money and what, in fact, was happening. Um, what they were saying to the customer in terms of the uh, product they were receiving on the other end was a very sort of different offering. And so I don't want to say it wasn't No, surprising. it just seems the more egregious. No, but it, it, it's the more egregious issue when you're playing with somebody's health. That's my only point. I know that there wasn't as much of a paper trail. It was much harder to prove. Obviously, that's how things played out. But personally, when, when looking at this, just from an outside observer, like the things that always bothered me more were playing with people's health and playing with people's money. Right. Um, you know, the, look, the distinction look, in, in that in case, end, though, gonna... was that she was, I'm not going to defend her, but they were running those tests on their own systems and then separately running them on other systems that actually worked. And that, that was actually one of Sometimes. the distinctions in terms of, I think, why <laughs> right. you saw the jury come back uh, with the ruling that they did, in part because there was not clear evidence that the tests right. th themselves were coming back with inaccurate, you know, regularly coming back with inaccurate results. It was that they were coming back with results, just not from their own machines. N yeah. Not from their own machines. Right? And, and tough, tougher to prove intent, I think, in the paper trail that, you know, that the that, that there was a, a plan set out to to try and deceive or, or defraud patients. That probably is also the, the tougher one. I think it's, you know, sometimes it's actually when you see a jury that clearly considered each charge on its merits and, and drew distinctions, you know, that's often interesting, too, that, you know, they, they, they clearly got deep on the details of it. And, you know, Andrew, to your point on the chilling, it's tough to get away from the idea that, that the sheer amount of attention and publicity that Elizabeth Holmes got on the way up has a lot to do with why this was, uh, you know, something that prosecutors wanted to go after. And that also was what fed the, the fundraising, right? So it's all together.
Right. And back to your original point about whether this has a chilling effect, the idea that they came back and found them guilty of fraud to investors, not to patients, should have a chilling effect on the rest of the Valley because you can't say, oh, this is different because they were dealing with patients and not with just investors like we are. Um, so, again, well, we'll, that's we'll continue what I wonder, to talk more about this. Because I think it's, yeah. it's happened for a very long time in the private market. Uh, you can make some arguments, even in, in potentially the SPAC market has been a lot looser in many ways right. uh, than the traditional public market has been. I am sure if you were to go look at presentations or draft presentations uh, that were put together uh, for the public and some of the things and numbers that were provided internally and how, the, how they were laid out, uh, you would you would be surprised. So it's, it's, it's an interesting one, and I, I wonder whether it yeah, changes any bit of the surprised. culture. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it should if, if people are paying attention. And I, I think it probably will have that impact. People go back and look and say, wait a second, am I going to get in trouble for what I'm claiming and for what I'm saying here? Is it no longer fake it till you till you make it? Is it more of a you better tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the well, truth? Well, you, you know, what's interesting we'll is that all along Silicon Valley venture capitalists and people who are really deep in the industry have always wanted to say, look, it wasn't really the big funds in Theranos. It really was kind of people right. from the outside throwing money in. You know, people with, you know, who are prominent and had money. And, and Andrew, it reminds me a little bit of when Madoff went down. And yes, there were right. sophisticated people that Madoff took down. But it wasn't like, oh, this was the business as usual of Wall Street. And look at that. The, one of the biggest guys on Wall Street doing the stuff Wall Street does was taken out. And that was always people who were in the industry were like, no, no, this is not. This was an outlier. And we kind of set him aside for a long time. But I right. think Andrew's right when you point to the SPACs. Absolutely. Well, that's a buyer beware thing. Look, we're putting five-year projections out there. You bought the stock. You read the disclosures. It's, it's wild, but that's, uh, that seems like the rules uh, that are in, in effect right now. Next on Squawk Pod, BlackBerry finally retiring the iconic phones with keyboards. So long, BBM. But maybe we'll hang on to the hardware for old times' sake. I'm going to keep it. I, I don't have a charger. I didn't throw it out. You can't part with it. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod today with Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Mike Santoli. And we're getting a blast from the past. We got to send it over to Becky because I, this is a story that I know is dear to her heart and dear to her, her, her uh, pocket, not right? Not anymore. No, no, not anymore. I haven't had a BlackBerry in so long, but it is the end of an era, if you haven't heard this already. BlackBerry is actually discontinuing service for its classic devices today. That means its phones will no longer function for data, phone calls, text messages, or for 911 functionality. These phones were once a status symbol among celebrities and CEOs and news anchors who like to compete at Brick Breaker. 
The company has since pivoted to focus on security software because that was really the basis for why so many folks on Wall Street wanted to use these things and in government too, because it had very uh, tough encryption. Um, I found this this morning, you know, it was upstairs, we were cleaning things out and I found it a while ago. This is such an old phone. And I'm shocked at how much smaller the screen is, how much smaller it feels in your hand. But Andrew, you knew know that I wanted to hold on to this thing for forever. I got addicted to it. Um, but it's been a long time since I, I switched to the iPhone because the iPhone was so much better at connecting to the internet, at giving you a big screen, at being able to kind of scroll things through things and do things that this thing was never going to do. But it makes okay. sense that they, oh my gosh, is that me? <laughs> okay. All right, I got to practice. We have B-roll of you. You did not see this is you. <laughs> this, we have you, Becky. See. We have you on the screen here. This is this okay, is Becky Quick. I think this is probably the same Blackberry. That was so long ago. Wait, here it is. Blockbreaker Deluxe. It might yeah, have been. Um, never Back wanted to let day. go of this thing. But yeah, here we are. Now, are you going to keep I, it? I can't believe I found it. I'm going to keep it. I, it. I don't have a charger, so I don't even know what's on it. But I, I, I have the feeling there's probably old photos and maybe old contacts and things that I want to keep. So I, I didn't throw it out. Can't part with it. I still I, look. I got my first BlackBerry in 2000, back when it looked like a pager. Do you remember that? Yeah. It was like a little, mm -hmm. little do. baby, and then and then it had just the black and white screen and, and all of that. So. It was back when Those email was kind of the, the innovation, right? It was like that really right. was the killer app for, you know, as distinct from a regular right. cell phone. It's amazing to think back. Right. Or a pager. Right. And, and, and just thinking back, it, it does take you back to how dominant this thing was and makes you question all the dominant tech companies that we see today. Yep. Can they hold on? Can they continue to innovate? Can they continue to stay on top? We'll see. Rest in peace, BlackBerry. In the modern era, that's our podcast for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Mike Santoli for sitting in. Check us out on Twitter, at Squawk CNBC. We'll share video clips there of Becky Quick, Rick Breaker Obsessive of 2007. And you can tweet us with anything on your mind. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.